Alright, well good morning. We're going to be continuing our study on how we got the Bible. And just before we start, uh, is there anything that uh, anyone might have any questions about concerning what we looked at last week? I think that was kind of a brief overview. I don't think we really, uh, like I said, it was just very basic, kind of a summary, breaking down uh, the New Testament, Old Testament, those divisions, those books. Uh, we also briefly looked at some of the manuscripts or some of the main manuscripts that are used to, to form our current text. And uh, today we're going to look a little bit more deeper at the, the Old Testament canon. And when we think about why uh, we do this lesson, those words are small. Uh, it always looks a whole lot bigger on the computer screen than on there. And so, at least for me, in the way I think through, you know, why uh, we even study a topic such as this, is that, you know, at the very beginning, uh, we think about the question, did men write inspired scripture? All right? Did God give uh, men information and they wrote that information down, all right? So that's either a yes or a no question. And so if it's yes, I think the next question is, okay, well, they gave that scripture, or they, they wrote that scripture down, and so was that scripture faithfully transmitted throughout time, all right? Do we have that information, uh, the same information that they originally wrote, all right? So again, that's another yes or no question. All right, and so after that, so all right, so we have that being transmitted throughout time, and then we also get into a situation where, okay, we may have it, and we may have a lot of various works uh, that men may ascribe to God or think that they may have some authority in our life, and so then it gets into to discussion: is did men accurately throughout time? determine what was scripture, all right? And so uh, we won't really get into it today a whole lot, uh, but that's a discussion about, you know, uh, that whole, um, you know, these councils, these meetings where people uh, got together and tried to determine what was scripture, what was inspired, all right? And so really, at least for our lesson, is... The whole uh, question about inspiration is an entirely different question that we are not going to study, but uh, at least these last two points uh, we want to get at, all right? And so once we determine whether or not uh, men wrote inspired scripture, which I would assume everybody here does, all right, so we say, yes, they wrote inspired scripture, then it becomes a situation of whether or not we still got that same scripture today, all right? And so hopefully we'll figure that out in this lesson. Okay? And so last class we looked at some of these Old Testament manuscripts. Remember that, that we have the Aleppo Codex, the Leningrad Codex, the Cairo Codex, uh, the Leningrad Codex of the Prophets, and the British Library Codex of the Prophets as well. And so when you look at the first two, the Aleppo and the Leningrad uh, codex, right? So notice that the Leningrad Codex is the oldest complete manuscript. Uh, Aleppo has a lot of the other books as well. These two 
really form what's called the the Masoretic Masoretic text. I believe I'm saying that right. Okay, and so does anyone here know why that is called the, the Masoretic text? And and, and what I'm, and that Masoretic text kind of forms the the really the backbone of our Hebrew text today. Anybody know why that why that came? Okay. So, uh, the reason we have that term, it goes back to the Masoretes, which that word comes from a Hebrew word is called like Mashura, something along that lines that uh, is the founder's tradition, right? And so, it, that word just kind of got tied into uh, the scribes and the tradition of writing the law and 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 uh, and continuing writing the law throughout time, and so these Masoretes are scribes, all right. And we look in the Old Testament, and, and from a you know really early time, the Jews has set up uh, basically a system for scribes, all right, to continue writing copies of the law. We see that in First Chronicles chapter two and verses uh, fifty-five that. It says, in the families of the scribes who dwelt at Jabez were the Terathites, Shemiathites, and the Succothites. And so we have all these individuals, and they were scribes, all right? And so I forgot to bring uh, the book uh, by Neil Lightfoot, and I had a reference here. But in the Talmud, which is basically uh, Jewish civil law, it lays out very thoroughly... Uh, how these scribes would go about copying uh, the text. I mean, is a lot of it was kind of similar to a, a priest cleansing himself, and uh, there was a lot of preparation work uh, for the scribes themselves before they write. But they had restrictions on like the ink. Uh, you know, they couldn't, of course, they couldn't write it in rainbow colors, uh, so on and so forth. They would also have. Um, Regulations as far as like spacing in between letters and words as well, and it was very interesting. But it's very rigid regulations that they had in regards to writing uh, these texts, and so which which takes us to uh, the Masoretes, and there's really two main families or, or groups of individuals uh, that are very important for us today. And so they go back to around 500 A.D., but we have this, this Ben Asher family of Tiberius, and then we have the Masoretes of Tiberius. The, the Ben Asher family, I can't remember what, uh, if it was both of those codexes, but at least one of those codexes, either the Aleppo or the Leningrad, uh, that they, that's who's responsible for this. They, they, it goes back uh, to these groups of individuals. All right, and so we had scribing throughout time, and then you know after 70 A.D., after the destruction, all that good stuff, you still have these individuals that spend vast amount of time solely for the purpose of keeping copies of this law. Right, and so another thing to point out with this text, and we. You know, we kind of briefly touched on uh, how closely the Hebrews uh, and even 
those that uh, translated the Hebrew into Greek, how closely they would uh, pay attention to the actual original text. They try to get as close to the original text, even as far as the letters and even the size and shape of the letters as well. And so one thing, and I don't believe I mentioned this in in the uh, last class, is Hebrew, at least the original Hebrew, did not have vowels, all right? It was just consonants. And so throughout time, we have vowels that are created. And so they would have the original text, and so they would write the original text exactly how it was given, but they would insert these vowel points above and below lines of text, all right? And so if you harken back to what we talked about last class, that at times if there were some errors in or what the scribes would perceive as errors, they might would put a dot above a word or a letter and say, okay, well, uh, I think this might be misspelled, but they did not even change the text. They kept the misspelled word. This is the same thing that's kind of going on with these vowel points is they, it would help the grammar, all right? And I just, I can't comprehend trying to speak without vowels. That would just get, you know, it'd be hard for us to communicate. But these vowel points that have, that were developed, they were inserted so that, you know, at least myself or others can uh, better read uh, or understand that Hebrew but again, it was not inserted into the actual text. It was either above or below. They strive to keep the integrity of the actual original text, which I just find to be very, very interesting. Right? Also, uh, with these Masoretes, they would like number verses. They would number words and letters of each book. And so they would get in and they would figure out you know, what the, the middle word of the Old Testament was, or even like the middle letter of the Old Testament or, or the, the middle letter of a book, all right? And so the reason being is that helped for them to pinpoint if there's any errors in their work, all right? So if the, the middle word in the Old Testament was, I don't know, some word, whatever it may be, if that word was off, we know that there's an error somewhere, all right, and if even if there was a the wrong letter in the midpoint, we immediately immediately know there's something going on here. Somebody misspelled something, they misplaced something, and so they developed that as basically a, a check against any type of errors that they may have. All right? Any questions, comments on this? Okay. So those were the Masorettes. And, and really what I'm doing here is, again, they're they, they responsible for some of our, our, our major codexes that were used. But they spend a lot, a lot of time and effort in just maintaining the integrity of the text. That's really what we're concerned with is do we have the text and a very faithful and trustworthy text today that they had uh, when the Old Testament was being given and, and, and during the time of the Jews, right? So, which takes us to our next point. Somebody have, yeah. What happened So basically, it was those scribes, they would continue copying those letters. We do see where, so we had like the Moses, we have Joshua that were, was 
adding some, and I guess I could get into this uh, more in depth at a later time, but it was just over time the Jews kept uh, copies of the law. If you go back and, and remember the last class when we talked about uh, Josiah discovering the law, all right? And so they had, they were at least keeping copies of the law somewhere, all right, for a considerable amount of time, but they did lose it. But it came back around around Josiah's time, all right? Uh, we also see where apparently they had copies of the law even in the time of Ezra and, and, and uh, Nehemiah, which we'll talk about some other stuff regarding that later in this class. But it's, it's, it's obviously that they just kept copies of the law from the, from the Old Testament time, from Moses uh, through... Uh, you know, through the time of Malachi, all right? But we'll look at, so, you know, we see these dates, 500 A.D. We see some of these codex that says that it's around like 1,000, all right? We'll look at also some older copies of the Old Testament that was around, like, dating around the time of Jesus to, I think it was like maybe like the, around the 3rd century B.C., all right, and so that would kind of fill that gap between the time of the return from exile to the time of Jesus. All right, so we'll look at that a little bit more closely later on in this lesson. I hope that answered the question. All right, so let's take this to our next point. I have this map here. Somebody ought to already know what we're going to be talking about here. Um, so, uh, if you if you watch the history, I don't know how, if they do it now. History Channel has changed a lot in the last few years, and it's been so disappointing. But I remember when I was a kid, uh, there for a little while, the History Channel or some other show was always talking about the Dead Sea Scrolls, all right? Of course, I never really paid attention to that. Uh, but it was a big thing, at least for there for a little bit, and it still is today, Okay. So, when we talk about the Dead Sea Scrolls, it's basically a bunch of scroll, well, mainly fragments. I don't know if there was entire scrolls, but at least a lots of thousands and thousands of fragments that were found, uh, was found in this area known as Qumran, I guess that's how you say it, all right? And so, it's near the Dead Sea, hence the name the Dead Sea Scrolls, okay? And so, these scrolls, a lot of scrolls, the, the, the original set of scrolls was discovered around 1948. Some kid was just, he lost a goat, and he goes searching for this goat, and he goes into this cave, and he finds basically all these uh, scrolls or, you know, fragments of scrolls, and he doesn't know where they are. He doesn't know what they are, and eventually it just, it, it it, it eventually gets sold to people that knew who they who who uh, you know knew what they were dealing with there, all right. And so again, it just happened to be found, okay. And so, really, the guy who found it, okay. <laughs> I bet he knows what the what the guy found. So um, yeah, that's interesting, all right. And so. 
So again, it was discovered in 1948. Originally, it was parts of Isaiah, and there was other works that were not even scripture. Like there was, I believe it was like Jewish marriage and divorce records, and then there was like other, uh, you know, works that were not part of the scripture as well. And since then, what I could gather was there was over there's over 25,000 fragments that are found. So again, there's big pieces. There there seems to be a lot of Isaiah, and then what you do see is that there are fragments of all of the Old Testament canon except for Esther, I believe, that they found here. And so these fragments are dated from around 3rd century B.C. to 1st century A.D., and that's very important. You know, just talking about our, our, our question there, that our codexes are relative, relatively young, but we have these fragments that are considerably older. Okay? And so, here's a quote. It says, The scrolls cover a wide range of topics and genres. Perhaps the most interesting are the biblical scrolls, which include text from every book of the Hebrew Bible, with the possible exception of Esther. We just talked about that. Uh, other scrolls are Jewish sectarian writings, administrative documents, deeds of sale, and even divorce and marriage records. And so, they originally found all this stuff in cave in that cave. And, and from what I understand, they have found more in locations that are near that all right they did they didn't just find that treasure trove in this cave i just get the picture of indiana jones just going in and just kind of like the indiana jones and the holy grail just discovering it you know it's there everything's there that's not really the case all right so like 1400 bc 14 1500 bc depending on who you ask so, yeah, so this is, so, so when would this would have been, when this stuff was being written? Pay attention to those dates, 3rd century B.C., 1st century A.D. What, what is important about that time period? So that's, yeah, yeah, so there's, yeah, so there's no prophecies, there's no new scripture being written, all right? And so this is, so we had this, the, the law and the prophets and, and copies of that and then during this time what we do see is there's copies of the stuff being made during the years of silence all right and so they we know uh, that it's not some just big gap between fourth century BC to a thousand AD all right we have copies we have information we have fragments that kind of fill the gaps throughout the years right? And so, there's one particular scroll known as the Great Isaiah Scroll. They have some numbering system for these these scrolls or these fragments. It's very complicated, all right? But the Great Isaiah scroll, Scroll, it reads virtually the same as the Masoretic text. And again, that's basically our accepted Hebrew text uh, today, all right? And so, this was uh, dated around 100 B.C. But notice, there are differences in spelling, grammar, and then there's modifications of vocabulary. Yes. I don't know much about the Jews or what they believe in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Is, is there any dispute that you know of among the Jews or the legitimacy of what we would call the Old Testament? Not really. 
there, there's so I'll briefly touch on some apocryphal books, all right? But which we'll even look at some Jewish sources on that very briefly here towards the end of the class. But if we get there, um, but what we what what is it accepted? Now there may be some that accept some of the apoc- apocryphal books, but as far as the books we have today, the Jews, I mean, that's they pretty much accept it. We'll look at that oh. later. Okay. Yeah. I read recently that there are some Jewish edification, I mean, editing going on where they're going back and trying to take out some of the prophecies towards the Messiah. Well, imagine that. <laughs> and which we'll um, we'll actually touch on uh, uh, a version of the Old Testament that kind of does similar to what, what you're talking about. Uh, it has to do with uh, what's called the Sumerian the Samaritan Pentateuch, alright? But that editing, that I would be interested in looking at some of that stuff as the reasoning for that editing because I mean, what did Isaiah have, alright? And so that came throughout time that there's no changes in the text, there's not stuff that's absent okay, throughout time, the only changes that we see is spelling, you know, again some modifications of vocabulary and, you know, remember languages change throughout time so, yeah Yeah. AD. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so that kind of goes back to my the, the very first slide that, that asked, you know, did men write inspired scripture? All right. So there's not really there's not really a basis of argument to say, okay, well, uh, Isaiah was manipulated throughout time because we see where it stays fairly consistent. The question of, I guess, would get back to is, you know, maybe there's some conspiracy that somebody changed it, you know, when Isaiah wrote it, or Isaiah was not even inspired uh, when he wrote it. I think that's the conclusion that you would have to get to. Okay? And, and we'll talk about some of these differences in the Great Isaiah Scroll in the next slide. All right, there's there's one, so we have one, there's one manuscript in Exodus, which is written in Paleo-Hebrew, which is an old-style Hebrew, uh, there wasn't much that I could find about that, but I just found it interesting. Like you see, even differences in languages and even changes in the Hebrew throughout time. Remember what we talked about is probably the very original Hebrew was probably more of a hieroglyphic or more of a cuneiform type of language, uh, very very early. And then uh, you know when we think about maybe Hebrews, uh, uh, Hebrews uh, during the time of Moses, that it might have been more of a a uh, very early form of a alphabet uh, being used. But this would have been a very early form of the Hebrew language there. Uh, here, uh, according to Lightfoot, it says, he, he talks about manuscripts of the first and second Samuel, uh, that these manuscripts, you know, sometimes they offer better readings than those of the Masoretic text. And so that will, I can't remember for sure, but there are different translations of the Hebrew. So we have like the Septuagint. We have uh, some, so we have like a, the Latin Vulgate as well. 
Uh, but there, you see those difference, a little bit of differences in translations, like a New King James versus New American Standard. You know, there's differences in the translations, but they all harken back to the original text. But you see these uh, fragments that, again, uh, you know, they're not just vastly different, but there are some slight changes, again, in the spelling or the grammar. And then we see here uh, what is the argument made that it may even offer better readings than the Masoretic text, but I don't exactly know what they mean by better readings. Maybe it's just better for us to understand. And then, um, again, most differences are translation differences, and they are, quote, mostly akin to or virtually identical to the Masoretic text. And so with the the Great Isaiah Scroll, uh, there's 37 variations from that and our current Hebrew text, which I just think that's, that's not very much, okay? And even with that being said, most of these are variations in the spelling, okay? And so we have three that affect the translations but are not significant. Those three are here. And so there's a phrase that they were calling, all right, that is used in the, in the scroll instead of our current text, which would read one call to another, okay? So they were calling versus one call to another, Another that has holy, holy instead of holy, 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 okay? And then another one that is sins plural for sin singular, all right? And so, again, these are, I don't know about y'all. Y'all might think that's major, but that's very, very minor. Um, you know, differences between what we have now and that Isaiah scroll. So, Third century, or what was that? 100 BC, I believe, uh, the Isaiah Scroll, and then to a thousand AD. So over the course of 1,100 years, you think about that for a minute. The information that we got, these are really the only changes that we have. Very, very minor. A uh, scholar by the name of Bledon J. Roberts, uh, what he has to say, he says, the authenticity of the Masoretic text stands higher than at any time in history of modern textual criticism, a standpoint which is based on a better assessment of the history of the Jewish transmission. All right, and so he says, the authenticity of what we have now is more legit than it ever has been. And then... Another guy named J. Weingreen, he says it should be it should therefore be stated explicitly that when we survey the Hebrew Bible as a whole, the incidence of copyist errors is statistically very few indeed. Even allowing for the intrusion of occasional errors in the received Hebrew text, it is remarkable how faithfully it was transmitted. And so again, they, these people are just it's you know again they're saying it is amazing how closely what we have now, uh, how closely relates to those, uh, that information, that evidence that we have from thousands of years ago, hundreds of, of years ago. Any questions, comments? All right. So, which takes us to another, 
it's not necessarily, I wouldn't call it a translation of the, I don't, I don't know if the best word is version or translation of the Old Testament, but there's this other copy of the Pentateuch, which is, again, is the first five books of the, the Old Testament that the Samaritans wrote, all right? So what do y'all know about the Samaritans? And not just, don't just tell me they, they talked about them in the New Testament. Not fully Jews. Jews. Yeah, and so there was some mixing there. Uh, Jew, there, you know, I guess you say half Jew, half Gentile, whatever. But they separated themselves from the Jews, or I don't know, if maybe maybe the Jews separated themselves from the Samaritans might be the better uh, way to say that. But uh, did they continue to worship God? The Samaritans. All right. Yeah. Yes, they did. They actually built an altar on Mount Gerizim, okay, which will be important uh, for uh, what we look at here, okay. So they continued to, to worship God. You know, they, they didn't just dispel the Jewish religion, uh, but they did build their own altar, I guess, wherever they chose, on, on Mount Gerizim. And so it is a version of the Pentateuch. It's, it's dated back to around 400, uh, 400 B.C., Okay. And so this one has 6,000 variations for the Masoretic text, which just looking at that again, that's like, whoa, that's a lot. But m- the majority of these are with spelling and grammar. Okay, But what we do see is that there are sections in, in Exodus 20 and in Deuteronomy chapter 5 that says that when it's commanding Israel to build an altar, they tell them to build an altar on Mount Gerizim. All right which kind of leading back to what Miss Wanda was saying earlier, that you kind of kind of make sense why they would alter uh, their version to say Mount Gerizim, all right? And again, before I get any further, we don't, we don't, I mean, this version is not, uh, we're not using that to form any of our Hebrew texts today, all right? I think that should be understood. Uh, but, the, but the reason I bring this up is that it gives credence to our current Hebrew text, all right? And so there are some differences. You know, again, uh, they have, you know, this fascinating fascination with Mount Gerizim. And then we see in Deuteronomy 27.4 where Mount Ebal reads as Mount Gerizim as well, okay? And so, again, we see those differences and we see those those variations with spelling and grammar, but it is once we once we account for that, there's very very uh, little differences between this version and then the Hebrew text. All right, and so you know it harkens back to the original Pentateuch, and it gives legitimacy to it. All right, because again that there is so uh, much. Um, Imitation uh, between uh, the two texts, right? I actually didn't even know this existed before I studied, but I just I just found it to be interesting that they, you know, they made their own and they only accepted the first five books of the Bible too. All right, they didn't accept the prophets and, and, and anything else. All right, and so which takes us to our, our next. Uh, 
I guess, version of the Old Testament, which are known as Targums. And if you remember, I believe it was Nehemiah, that uh, with people will gather together, they read the law, and then it says that they also gave the sense to the law. Okay, And at that time, so the text was in Hebrew. By that time, there was probably a lot of Aramaic-speaking Jews there. Uh, and so they had to give the sense to it. There had to be some translations most likely given. And these Targums are oral paraphrases of the Scriptures, okay? And so, they would again, they would somebody would be reading it, and I just got this picture that there would be somebody translating it there, talking, you know, and, and just saying, okay, this is what the Hebrew says, and this is what what it means um, uh, for you. Okay? So again, Scripture had to be translated or, or paraphrased in, in Aramaic. Okay? And so, at least for some time, these Targums were always oral. And so in a synagogue, if they were gathered together to read the text, all right, you always had someone reading from the actual scrolls, reading from the actual text, but then you had somebody else, or you know, I assume somebody else, uh, given that oral paraphrase, which is known as a targum there, okay? And so kind of like when you watch the president talk, there's always somebody in, in, on the side doing the, 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 the sign language for the deaf people. This is kind of what I picture. Uh, this kind of going on, all right? And so, again, it's always oral, but eventually these Targums were, at least some of them, were written down. And so you have this Targum Ankylos and Targum Jonathan, which was dated, is dated around the 5th century, all right? And so we have the Dead Sea Scrolls going back from about the 3rd century B.C., we had that Samaritan Pentateuch was around 400 B.C., okay? And then we had these Targums, which are, again, dated around, that would be the 5th century, all right? So around 5, what would that be? four to 500 A.D., okay? reason this is important and, and should be looked at is that those Targums that we have that are written, they still are very close to the Hebrew text, all right? And to remember that they are oral paraphrases, so we would assume that there would be some slight differences. I think about the uh, some of the, some of our uh, Bible translations; some are more literal, some are more of a paraphrase. All right, and so you would expect some differences, but these are very slight differences here. There are several references to God that are paraphrased. Uh, from what I understand, was it seemed like a lot of those, it was something about saying God, that it seemed, or referencing God, uh, that there tended to be some changes made in references uh, to him. Uh, in Genesis 3 and verse 8, so I believe it, in our Bibles it would say that basically uh, they, they heard the Lord God or the sound of the God walking in the, in the garden. Here it says the sound of the word of the Lord God walking in the garden. Okay. Uh, in Exodus 3, in verse 1, this was in reference to Mount Sinai. It talks about, I believe it, talk, it says like the mountain of God or the mountain of the Lord. And rather than saying that, it says the mountain upon the which the glory was revealed. Which, to me, that's kind of like, well, that's true. All right? Uh, there's not, 
it doesn't just vastly change the, the, the meaning of that text. And then Isaiah 6, 1, uh, this would be like basically him actually seeing the Lord. And here uh, it says, I saw the glory of the Lord. Right? Which I think that might even be a better rendering of what of Isaiah 6, 1 personally. Okay? But we see that, again, that they are... Uh, very small changes to the text, uh, to that paraphrase that we have written down. Uh, we also have some targums that were also found at Qumran, all right? So the, the Dead Sea Scrolls, we have some actual text. We also have some of those targums that were also found there. Okay? Uh, got a minute or two. Uh, we also have the, the Syriac Peshitta, I guess that's how you say that, it is a Syriac version of the Old Testament. Okay, and it's dated to around maybe the, the middle of the first century here, so 50 A.D. Right. So this would just be again another language uh, which uh, the Old Testament was translated to. Uh, so early forms of, of this, and I don't I don't know how many forms of, of this translation that they are, but from what I understand, the the early forms were in close agreement to the to the, to the Masoretic text, what we have today. But we do see where the later versions are influenced by the Septuagint, which we won't get to that today. But that the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the of the Hebrew Old Testament. All right, and so again, early forms close to what we have today, and the later versions you would see some small changes because of you know apparently the people were probably translating more from the Septuagint at a later time and then earlier. Uh, any questions on that? Alright. So we'll talk about the uh, we're going to talk about the Vulgate and the Septuagint next class and uh, we'll probably get a little bit of those apocryphal books as well. <laughs>